one, one announcement I failed to make uh, is that um, after church today, we will be taking down the decorations from Christmas. Uh, if you're able to stick around for a few minutes, that would be helpful. If you're comfortable on things like ladders, especially, that would be helpful. Um, the other announcement I want to make, just so we're clear, it is not a Fu Manchu. All right? It is a horseshoe. The Fu Manchu is just mustache hair that's allowed to grow long and dangle straight down. Okay? So I, I continue to be very disappointed in the misinformation that is out there. Let me also, if I may, uh, express my sincere condolences to Justin, whose team got T-bowed last night in a really, really, really miserable fashion. But it was, it was a good run for a while. So this morning, we are in the Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And I want to say a little something about the next several weeks when we are in Romans chapter 1, the rest of it. There are two things that I think... If you forget, if you remember nothing else of the next month or so, there are two things I want you to remember. Number one, this is all a setup. This is all a setup. Number two, that doesn't mean it isn't true. So this is all a setup, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. Allow me to read starting in verse 18. I'll just read through the end of the chapter for right now. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God... So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. 
They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They even disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, not only do they continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. It is a word often used in a way different from what Paul was trying to use it for at least at this point in his life. It's probably a good idea for us at this point in the book of Romans to talk a little bit about Paul. A few weeks ago, of course, we brought the maps up on the screen and looked at the different missionary journeys that Paul was on as he was planting churches in the Mediterranean basin. But let's talk a little bit about Paul himself. What do we know about Paul? Well, he tells us a number of things about himself and the letters, and he tells us a number of things that are recorded in the sermons that he delivered in the book of Acts. The first time we see Paul, though, is in the book of Acts. In chapter 7 of the book of Acts, we have Stephen, a young follower of Jesus, who uh, was a man, we read in chapter 6, verse 8, a man full of God's grace and power who was able to perform great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. They began to argue with Stephen. They couldn't stand up against the wisdom that Spirit gave him as he spoke. But then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all of us, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, looked intently at Stephen. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, my brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said. Go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a strange land. They'll be enslaved and mistreated, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac, 
circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. All good for now. And because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made a ruler over Egypt and all his palace. And then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our people could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors on their first visit. Their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. All good for now, right? right? Nobody's disagreeing with anything. And as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. And then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his parents' home. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Again, nothing controversial at this point, right? This is all, you know, fairly straight telling of the story. The Sanhedrin listening at this point not have, have, don't have anything to disagree with Stephen about. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to their, be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who had appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the same Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. Again, all straight, right? This is all good, all normal. Some people would find this a tiresome recitation. Some people who forgot a few details might appreciate the reminder. People who never read the story are getting the cliff notes. And then there are people who just dig this and could hear this story told three times a day. Mary is not one of those people. We are. We are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is part of the... We're, we're, we're getting there. But our ancestors refused to obey Moses. Instead, they rejected him 
and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it. They reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. And this agrees with what's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, house of Israel? You've taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he'd seen. And having received the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. When they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Again, all good, right? However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. This is about the point where he kind of makes a turn that is not necessarily prudent if you're trying to keep these people from trying to kill you. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who've received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Well, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this did not go over well. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he'd said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was standing there approving of this. This is Saul, the Saul who became Paul. Flipping ahead a little bit in chapter 9 of Acts, we read that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any of them there who belonged to the way, that is, who were followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And he wasn't in church, but the answer was Jesus. 
I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Then traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, that must be some other dude named Ananias. Because I've heard about this guy. I've heard about all the harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. And now you want me to go to see him. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Well, Saul spent several days with the disciples there in Damascus, and at once once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished. They said, hey, isn't this the guy who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call upon this name? Didn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priest? And Saul grew more and more powerful, baffled the Jews living in Damascus with his demonstrations that Jesus is Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, (laughs) understandably, not believing he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him too. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. So this is the story of Saul, named Paul after his conversion. Saul, who was a zealous follower of the one true God. I mean, he was so zealous, he was looking for heretics, not just where he was, he wanted to go out and find some. He said, I want to go to Damascus and round up these heretics who are saying that this Jesus of Nazareth is Messiah. We can't have that. Got authorization from the chief priest, and he went on his mission. 
Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, he says, look, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. You heard how intensely I persecuted the church of God, how hard I tried to destroy it. Now, look, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. We read elsewhere that Paul was a disciple of Rabbi Gamaliel, who was among the most important and influential rabbis of the day. Paul was a young Jew in a hurry with the best possible academic pedigrees, with a solid record of zealous observance of law himself and persecution of those who were not. This is Paul. So when we read in chapter 1 of Romans what Paul says about all this naughtiness, listen to this again. And imagine this in the mouth of a zealous Jewish Torquemada. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Can you imagine Paul making this kind of speech before the Sanhedrin with somebody like Stephen there in the dock? This language here is beautifully crafted. You get the sense that this was a stump speech that Paul had from way back. This is the kind of thing maybe that a zealous young Saul might have said to whip up support among his fellow Jews against some heretic someplace. The, the idea that Paul's talking about here goes all the way back to Noah. The rabbis talked about the Noahide covenant, the covenant God made with all of humanity after Noah gets off the boat. And the rabbis understood there to be basically seven elements of the covenant that God made with all of humanity, things like uh, a prohibition of idolatry, a prohibition of murder, a, prohibition of animal cruelty. There are a few others, but, but basically the idea is that God has his special covenant relationship with his people, but God has also revealed himself to all people. And there are responsibilities all people have before God, responsibilities to do justice, responsibilities to acknowledge the one 
true God to not be following idols and doing all of the naughty things that the people who follow idols do, like, as you see on the cover of your bulletin, child sacrifice. And one of the other things that naughty people do that they shouldn't do is they do naughty things in bed. And this is something that people loved to talk about back then. Nobody today really wants to talk about this, ever. But this was, this was a boundary marker. This was a place where people could say, and that's what those bad people over there do. Because they forsook God, because they worshipped idols, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And guess what happens when you do that? When you worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who's forever praised? You do that, God is going to give you over to shameful lusts. Women, men, everybody are doing all sorts of wicked and naughty things with people they shouldn't be doing them with. We don't do that kind of thing, Paul might have said. But that's what those filthy Gentiles do. It's not just idolatry. It's not just sexual immorality. Once you start down this road, Katie barred the door. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what shouldn't be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, they're slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They even make up new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Because even though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, even though the common experience of humanity is involves some kind of conscience, some awareness that there are things that are right and things that are wrong and you should do the things that are right and not do the things that are wrong. Even though they know better. Not only do they do these things, but they approve of the people who do them. Not only are they doing them themselves, but they're cheering on the other folks who are doing the same things. This is the kind of naughty, wicked stuff, Paul would say, that people are doing. This, the young Saul would say, is what the Gentiles are doing. And so when one of these followers of the way, one of these idolaters who claims that Jesus is Messiah, that he's Lord and wants to worship a man, boy, next thing you know, they're going to be hopping in bed with people of the same gender. And you can hear, as he's saying this, a segment of his audience getting a special feeling going up their leg. Right? Remember, in the church in Rome, we've got different people. We've got the folks who are from a Gentile background. We've got the folks who are from a Jewish background. The church in Rome was a diverse church. So the folks in Rome who are in this church 
who came from that Jewish background, when they hear this, this is fairly familiar. This is like a, a good patriot in the 50s hearing somebody to claim against communism. Yeah, yeah, they're bad, awful people. Yeah, they do these wicked, mean, terrible things. They're bad. So preach it, Paul. You tell them. Thing is, though, as I said, this is all a setup. As Kendall is going to talk about in a few weeks, the beginning of chapter 2, what Paul says is, and now you, you who've been cheering me on, you who are like, yeah, go get him, you who are thinking about how wicked all these wicked people are, guess what? You're no better. I know you're no better. God knows you're no better. You know you're no better. You do all kind of wicked things too. Point a finger, you got three pointing back at yourself, as they say. So if, in fact, as Paul says, if since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what is made, men are without excuse. That applies to you too, doesn't it? This isn't just about them. Condemnation, I'm talking about, Paul says, isn't just about somebody else. That isn't just about those wicked people over there. That's about you too. Now we can have a conversation, Paul says. So as we read these passages, I think we have to keep in mind what Paul is doing with them what his rhetorical strategy is here. There is not a lot of nuance here. There's not a lot of subtlety. Paul is cranking up the flamethrower full power, and he's doing it because he is trying to make a point. If you focus all of your energies on the things that Paul is condemning here, I would suggest you are precisely missing that point. Because we know what Jesus said. Right? You've heard it said, you shall not do this. Well, guess what? If you even think about doing that, it's like you've done it. See a speck in somebody else's eye? Tell you what, dude. Yank the log out of yours so you can see clearly to take the speck out of his eye. You think you're righteous, but you are under the very same condemnation everybody else is. And Paul was saying that to his Jewish audience in Rome that was feeling quite secure, not only in their covenant position, but also the fact that they were following the Messiah. Paul would say this to a modern-day Christian, reading this list of the naughty things that naughty people do. You say, yeah? That's not just them doing those things. This is a setup. But, as I said, just because it's a setup 
doesn't mean that it isn't true. And one of the other misapplications of this passage we can make, other than focusing on all the naughtiness and making sure we condemn all those other people who are doing those naughty things, one of the other misapplications we can make is to say, oh, well, this is just a rhetorical strategy. We don't really have to worry about all the things that Paul condemns. No, no, no. Paul condemns them for a good reason, because they're worthy of condemnation. Bad stuff is still bad. Even if he's pointing it out as part of a grander rhetorical strategy, it doesn't change the fact that it's bad. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be dealing with one of the most sensitive of these areas and the issue of sexual morality, specifically in regard to homosexual activity. Not the most popular thing to talk about and certainly a delicate subject. What I want us to do in the next couple of weeks is I want us to actually understand what Paul was saying, also understand what he wasn't saying, but to understand what he was saying. Make sure we're clear on that. Always bearing in mind that there's a bigger strategy that Paul is rolling out here. Making sure we don't miss the forest for the trees, but also making sure that we don't miss the trees. So next week I will be talking about about some of these more specific issues of translation. Not because I really want to drag people through this, though you may be thinking I do, but because it's important, knowing all the ways that people talk about this today, it's important to know what is and what isn't true about these very texts, these specific words and phrases involved. Then the week after that, we're going to have as our guest Josh Glazer. Josh is the executive director of Regeneration Ministries, which is uh, a ministry for folks who are dealing with issues of sexual addiction and sexual dysfunction. Josh is somebody who himself has been through struggles with that and is is leading this vitally important and wonderful ministry that serves people who are dealing with that, people, people's spouses who have to walk through that with them and deal with it as well. Josh will be speaking to the same issues but from a different angle. Because I don't want us to miss this either. It is true. Even though it's a setup, it is true that Paul does have some very clear things to say about sexual morality. I don't want us to miss those. But remember, it's a setup. All right? But remember, it's true. Remember, it's a setup. Got it? It's a setup. But it's true. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that your word is deep and rich. We are grateful that we have the opportunity and the privilege of coming together to hear it, to study it. I pray that as we grapple with it ourselves, individually, as we grapple with it as a community, that by your Spirit you would shed light on the words you have inspired. I pray that you would guide our understanding. Help us to know what is true and help us to know what is important and help us not to get those confused. 
And I pray that the fruit of this would be that we walk more closely with you, would be that your church is built up, that the incursion of your kingdom into enemy territory would be furthered, that your name would be glorified. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.